On behalf of the new school, I'd like to welcome you all to Beyond Margins 2. And this program is sponsored by the Open Book Committee at Penn and the writing program here at the new school. Um, before I introduce our first speaker, there are a couple of people I'd like to um, thank for their efforts tonight. The first would be Jace Clayton, who is so modest he left his name out of the program. But um, thank you, Jace, for all your hard work. I'd also like to thank Scott Berry, um, who works at the writing program, who is invaluable in organizing events here at the new school. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first speaker, Elizabeth Nunes, who has a wonderful new novel called uh, Bruised Hibiscus, and it is for sale out front along with books by the other participants tonight. And Elizabeth also, in addition to being co-chair to the Open Book Committee, she directs the National Black Writers Conference and does a great job with both of those. So please welcome Elizabeth Nunes. Welcome, everyone. Um, welcome on behalf of Penn Open Book Committee. Um, this is a very important event for us because we are so committed, uh, particularly in today's environment of um, the merging of publishing companies. And if you are a writer, you know what that means. <laughs> It means if you sent your book to Viking, then you can't send it to about six other publishers because Viking has put that reject on your, or that pass on their computer. And then you can't, you know, there are a whole bunch of other um, publishers you normally could go to that you're, you're stuck with. It's, 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 an, it's a nightmare. Um, also, it's a nightmare in terms of bookstores. Um, with the, the independent bookstores folding and the superstores getting larger and larger. And for us, um, those of us writing literary fiction or nonfiction, that means we become wallpaper, <laughs> you know, because what they're really selling are those bestsellers, you know, the popular um, book. So the Open Book Committee is committed to um, giving access to writers of color and giving access to those of us who are, are published by small presses that don't have the, the, um, the resources to, to, to get our work to the public. Um, and series like these will give us an opportunity to meet these writers, to, um, to hear what they are doing, and to support them. And, and before I get off of here, I want to say something that happened at the National Black Writers Conference. We've been doing these conferences since 1986. And it started with uh, John Oliver Killins, that wonderful novelist that he and I worked together on the first conference. And for him, the theme of that conference had to be the responsibility of the writer to the community. It's always talking about you know, if you're a writer of color, you have a responsibility to the community to project constructive, positive images of people of color to rectify the distorted images and the stereotypes. And believe it or not, no matter, we never could get off that dime. No matter how we changed the topic of the conference, every conference came back to that theme. This time, with the conference that we just finished a month ago, Sonia Sanchez opened the conference and she changed it. She said, I think we need to talk about the responsibility of the community to the writer. 
And almost every panel afterwards at the conference um, talked about that. Um, what Sonia Sanchez says is, I hear people saying they're tired of these girlfriend novels. I hear people saying they're tired of these commercial and popular novels. But she says, do they realize that unless they put their money where their mouths are, that's what's going to happen? And then uh, people like Quincy Troop did something real funny. You know, he said he, he's so tired of people coming up to him and saying, boy, that's a real, you are a really good writer. What, what? And, says, and then when they're finished with that, they said, boy, but you know, your book is too expensive, $24.95. And he says, and they're covered with jewelry and the latest, you know, the latest designer, whatever. So I want to leave you with that. I think it, was, it took us from 86 to 2000 for us to break that chain, for Sonia Sanchez to give us sort of the courage to actually, as writers, to say it. Hey, the community needs to be responsible to us. If you want good literature published, you have to understand it only happens when the public says, the, public, the, the market says to the publisher, this is what we want. And the way you say that is you buy the books. So I'm hoping there will be some support for that. And um, I think I said more than I'm supposed to say. <laughs> and I am happy now to introduce our um, mistress master <laughs> of ceremony, the great Jessica Kiermore, who was a panelist at our conference and brought the house down. Uh, 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 a renowned poet in her own right, a performance poet in her own right, a publisher and a great supporter of writers of color, Jessica. Um, how's everyone doing? Good, we braved the storm. It's windy out there, I'm just like, please don't rain on our wonderful day and our wonderful evening. Um, I wanna just welcome everyone, just thank you for coming out despite the chance of thunderstorms, um, but real people who like literature and writing aren't afraid of things like that. And um, I wanna just say as, I mean, Elizabeth definitely, you know, spoke on a lot of things that I feel strongly about because it's my livelihood. And I really wanna thank people who come out to honor and support the people who are being awarded tonight because it's very difficult to be an independent writer, to be an independent publisher. And I, I know it very well because it's what I do. And um, it, you don't do it because you wanna be rich. You do it because you care about literature. You do it because you know that there are stories that need to be told that don't get told because simply because of marketing, because big publishers don't wanna take chances on young, new voices. And, um, and so it's, it's a blessing to see organization like Open Book, this you know, honoring beyond, the Beyond Margins you know, event, honoring young women and men of color because um, we don't get the support that we need and deserve. And so um, I'm gonna open with a poem. I'm just gonna be creative and then I'm gonna introduce um, two of the four authors that are being honored tonight. Um, this is a piece um, I just wrote and I'm gonna do it for a wonderful playwright in the audience, T. Tower Turk. And, um, because writing is just about, you know, kind of just where I'm at right now. I'm just kind of writing about where I'm at, and I'm uptown, and I live on um, 159th Street, and it's an interesting experience to live uptown, nonetheless. And um, so this is called Walking Up 158th Street. It's, I walk and get my son um, from school on 158th Street, and it's a deep walk. And he says, why don't they take out the trash? Why, why is it dirty on this block? He doesn't understand at five. Why does the garbage stay out on this block so long? And so this is guess, in response to him. 
Little brown lady with brown eyes, deep brown eyes and 12 hands, carrying her groceries, children, dreams, baggage, heart, memories, bullet wounds, stress, OT, future, pocketbook, and temper up the stinky stairs of the subway station. Twin boys, Mexican, Latino, Indian, African, any child in America, wearing Yankees jackets, playing tag, double murder, child stealers, watching them running without worry, laughing with the sunset. How can they be so happy in this ghetto, running past the preppy drug dealers, shifting their smooth feet to avoid the green glass? Four legs find the door to an open apartment. This time they made it, unaware of how dangerous their footsteps seem so close to home. Fat girl, fat girl in a white v-neck t-shirt, bra too small, stuffed inside tight jeans, ponytail slicked back, 40-year-old lipstick and dream catcher eyes. They follow her, the old men and the teenagers. They whistle and yell. They follow her, but she is lost on her own block. She wants to believe she is more beautiful than her block. She, when she grows up, she wants to be big, big as a house with brick windows and paper doors. She wants to draw the doorknob orange and let anyone in, let anyone in who'll give her a little. She wants to be big, let anyone in who'll give her a little man said he was gonna make her big man said he was gonna make her big she wants to be big big as a house she'll let anyone in yes anyone in he'll give her a little attention white blind lady on heroin white blind lady on heroin is somebody's mama giving black folks the what you doing uptown stare down white blind lady on heroin broke her arm on new year's eve partying with her friends prostituting on the local playground her bones are sleeping inside the elevator her bones are sleeping inside my elevator she has a key but doesn't live in my building i sometimes live in my building and i can never find my keys she smiles at my family when she can find her teeth she wants to get high but keeps falling down she wants to get high but keeps falling down this is a game she plays with herself every night. White, white blind lady on heroin is somebody's mama. Little brown lady with brown eyes gave birth to twins. One is a little fat girl who doesn't know she's already beautiful, so she dyes her hair blonde, snorts, shoots, and smokes herself skinny. She, any child in America, where with 12, hand, with 12 hands praying for a bigger house, any house, anybody but her own body is somebody's baby, carrying bags of groceries, waiting for someone to notice them, walking up 158th Street. Thank you. My ode to my hood, okay, and some of the people that I see in my neighborhood, okay. Um, the, the the two people I'm gonna um, bring up, I must say that I've, I've I've never met, and I'm still honored in their presence um, to say that you're on an independent writer on an independent publishing house. Is um, I know it, it takes a lot of sacrifice as a writer to even do that, and you don't if you're not on Random House and you don't have that kind of a marketing budget behind you, it's it, it's very difficult to get your book noticed, and so um, we're taking notice of you today. So please, um, the two readers that are going to come up, I'd like you to please give them a warm, warm round of applause. The first one is Rana Reiko Rizzuto, who'll be reading and discussing the New Eurasian anthology, and following her is Natasha Tarpley, who'll read from Girl in the Mirror. Please. A round of applause for both of these authors. Hi, welcome. What a great act to follow. I'm going to be talking about the New Eurasian Anthology tonight. Um, it's a book edited, uh, I'm the associate editor, but it's edited by Bino Riluyo. Um, he's not here tonight, he's in Manila. Uh, and he's one of the mo most poetic souls I have ever met, and so I'm sorry that he isn't here. Um, I want to thank you so much for recognizing this book. Um, and I want to thank you not just from me and from Bino, but from all the many people who really gave this book their guts and their artistry. This book has two parents, Bino and the Asian American Writers Workshop. 
And I just want to say a few words about each of them before I read a couple of pieces from it. First, I want to acknowledge the workshop because this anthology exists because in 1997, the director of the workshop, Curtis Chin, wanted to hear the sound of Asian American voices that were not talking about World War II internment camps or working on the railroads and who were not reconstructing their grandparents' arrival in the West Coast in the late 1800s and early 1900s. The voices that he wanted to hear were concentrated in New York because it is still the entry point and the home of immigrants and their children. And also, because it gives us the unique opportunity to examine the huge and really kaleidoscopic community that we've come to call Asian Americans in the varying stages of assimilation and Americanness that we have struggled so hard for and against. When Bino and I began working on this anthology, we really had no preconceived notion of what we wanted to include in it or what shape it should take. Uh, and as a result, you'll see that it's not organized by theme. The purpose, which was really Bino's purpose, was not to create new labels, but to defy old ones. And he was really committed to discovering emerging and undiscovered voices, to seeking out 16-year-old poets and 80-year-old texts. He wasn't interested in trying to represent New York or Asian American experiences. Uh, to include more women if more women were getting published or more Chinese writers or, or his approach was far more democratic than that. It was really one writer, one vote. And this inclusive approach is typical of Bino and of the workshop. Um, the workshop's sole purpose has always been to support and promote writers. Bino and I are longtime members of that workshop. He's actually one of the founders and he continued to work toward that goal of inclusion, even when I couldn't. I was the co-editor of this anthology when we started out, and I became the associate editor when the potential for this book became clear. And we realized that we had to extend the deadline and make it what it could be instead of what it was at that moment, which was easy. And I couldn't do it because I had to give birth, and that was one deadline I wasn't able to change. But I'm, I'm really glad that Bino persevered. He accepted and edited the final pieces by email when he was sitting in Mexico, and that's where he wrote the intro to the book. The final product, the New Eurasian Anthology, could never be described as easy. Uh, there's far too much in it to absorb in one sitting. It's almost 500 pages long. And although I can say that each piece in the anthology is good, that each is worthy by some artistic and literary measurement. I don't think that's what's important about this book. The value of this anthology lies in its process more than its product. I think it's important because we worked so hard to find little known and unpublished writers to help them polish their work if necessary so that every poem and story was equally good and to give them a little push so that the chorus of voices that Curtis initially wanted to hear which transcends Americanness and race and gender, sexual orientation, even New York, and in the end is simply human, will soon be deafening. So if I have time, I want to read a, a couple of short pieces from this book. They're each about a minute long. And I wanted to start um, with Bino's intro, which begins with the musings that he wrote in Cuernavaca. He says, the fascination with New York has crossed borders, transcended fabrics. At a bar last night, a drag queen limp-sick Liza Minnelli, New York and New York, out of sync. Behind her, 
half-naked male dancers. How tired, I thought, but I paid attention to her makeup and glitter, and in a glance noticed how the go-go boys in cages wore nothing. I was thinking then, as I am now, what can I possibly say to introduce this anthology? And I didn't know, still don't know, what this book is about. I thought about the many ways such books have been presented as a historical and literary mapping of Asian American life in New York City, a chronological arrangement, a collection of thematic divisions. Sitting here amid flies, fruit, and afternoon gossip, I welcome the shade of a tree. Unlike humid New York City, there's air here, in this city famous for its eternal spring where mosquitoes outnumber the rumor mongers in the plaza. This book is in between both seasons, or perhaps it is both. It is an anthology of heat and shadow, a melange of anger and the lack of it, of truth and disguise. It will be an out-of-sync drag queen, a New York one, glittering just the same. The first piece I want to read to you is by Vinnie Young. It's a, it's a short uh, section of a, of a story called Dit Da Jiao. It's about love and survival. The bottle broke on the back of his neck. Its jagged mouth nicked his jaw in a shallow path that ran from right below his ear to the corner of his lip. He stumbled, reaching out to place a hand firmly over her mouth to whip her head into the wall of the narrow hallway between the front door and the living room. He could hear her choking, trying to force the spittle back down her throat. He could hear his boots crackling and thundering on the wooden floorboards as he staggered to the bathroom. Sometimes love isn't what's in the picture books. Sometimes love is just what it is. She laid her head on his shoulder as he rubbed an odd-smelling ointment he called Dit Da Jiao on the throb at the back of her head. She churned the bottle in front of her gently, watching the faint, transparent film on the surface of the bong water murk that clung and oozed off the glass. It was a dingy brown liquid, thin and tainted with a metallic, alcoholic scent. His grandmother had made it herself. She had sent it to him a long time ago in a shoebox wrapped in brown paper and bandaged with postal tape. The bottle was tiny. The liquid inside it was slowly being lapped up by their growing assortment of bruises. And although he had hoped that he wouldn't, he would have to ask for more. This next piece is from a little how-to essay called How to Give Birth that I wrote one morning at about 6.30 because Bino was harassing me to get something in. Um, this is a, a little section from the beginning. Speaking of in-laws, do not invite your family to be in town for the birth. Even if they live in Guam and you live in New York, which makes it difficult for obvious reasons to call and say, hey, I had my first contraction. Why don't you hop a plane and meet me at Beth Israel Hospital in eight hours? Whatever you do, Never invite them to come early, as this will guarantee you an additional two weeks of pregnancy in the middle of the summer with family members staring at you. Five, six, seven. They will keep multiplying for a while, but don't worry. If you hold off long enough, they will begin to leave. They will be wondering why you don't bother to put on a shirt anymore and whether you truly believe you look good in spandex shorts and a sports bra, especially when you laugh and your belly button pops in and out. And they will be toying with the idea of suggesting that you request a cesarean section so the baby will be born before they too have to get on the plane. The danger of this scenario is that it leads to castor oil, a lumpy addition to your very large glass of morning orange juice at best, keep a towel handy to wipe your lips clean between gulps, 
and a totally inefficient way to induce labor. Castor oil is, however, quite good at giving you a taste of what it's like to be doubled over with diarrhea and cold sweats, wishing someone would slap a diaper on you and tuck you into bed. Even if you are lucky enough to have a diaper big enough for a 170-pound woman next to your stockpile of newborn diapers, which, by the way, your baby will outgrow before they're half gone, so split a package with a friend. Every member of your family will still be waiting outside your bedroom door when you emerge. I have two more. This is a, uh, from a poem by Amitava Kumar called India Day Parade on Madison Avenue. It's about exile. I have lost India. You have lost Pakistan. We are now citizens of General Electric. In this country, there are no new words for exile. And if you have nothing to sell, you have nothing to say that this or that is indeed you. But I still want my words. I still want to give back to you in the silence that follows our lovemaking the words that I have gathered from a part of your body that is dark like monsoon clouds in July. The heavy words, like gold coins, that I can bite with my teeth. The familiar ones that the vegetable seller returns to me like small change. Words, numerous and glittering, drawn like shiny fish in nets by men with darkened skin. Words that swing like the new cricket ball on the pitch surrounded by the hills of Peshawar. Those words that women burn in their fires to keep hearts from shutting with malice. Words that repeat themselves like the music in the wheel of the postman's bicycle. Words that are secret, holding close a hidden love. If there are no words like that, I want those essential few that will say north, that will say south, that will say past, that will say future, that will say poor, 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 that will say fight, 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 that will say hope, 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 hope. This last piece is by Pico Ayer. It's from an essay called New York, a city in black and white. Those of us who have escaped New York gather sometimes, like semi-hysterical graduates of some internment camp, and amidst pastel greetings and crayon skies, blacken the city in our minds. Discussions begin inevitably with parlor game dialectics. New York makes one hard. California makes one soft. California is about being, New York about doing. The East Coast is a race, the West Coast an exploration. Soon, though, the grievances strike deeper. New York, we say, is a place where daydreaming is obsolete, an antitropic that condemns everyone it touches to a life of grime. New York has at least taught us sarcasm. New York never, even at the break of day, we agree, feels like a city reborn. In New York recently, wrote Emerson, one seems to lose all substance and to become a surface in a world of surfaces. In New York City, we commiserate, we could never see the stars. And the only way to preserve this image is, of course, never to visit the place itself. For as soon as one does, one finds to one's horror that the city is much brighter than one imagined, looser than one recalled, marginally less evil. The museums one sees are flooded with images of light, even Hockney. The sidewalk cafes in summer feel almost like California. The music of the streets blazes with neon energy. And as the colors come flooding back, one begins, very slowly, 
to realize how many shadows are lost, how much dimension fades in the bleaching, never-ending California sun. New York, in memory and imagination, seems almost like a hallucination, a rush of strange faces, twisted shapes, flashes of the unexpected, a cultural pawn shop cluttered with bric-a-brac, a reality so exaggerated that it becomes a kind of surreality. And from a porch above the sea in California, that can almost seem like something to yearn for. Thank you very much. Hi, good evening. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming out, and I'd really like to thank the Penn Open Book Committee. Um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing to have in existence, and I just want to thank them for creating that space, because it's very, very needed, um, and also for inviting me to be a part of that work. Um, Girl in the Mirror is a book about three generations of women in my family, my grandmother, my mother, and myself. Let me see. I'm never good with this stuff. Um, and I wrote it in each of, each of our voices. And it traces the migration of the women from the south to the north, from city to city. Um, and I look to those women as kind of anchors and kind of place marks as I continue on my own journey. Um, but the men also made some appearances, my grandfather and my father. Um, I'm going to read, actually, from my grandfather's voice as he's um, leaving Alabama and going north. And the woman he refers to, Anna, is my grandmother. <clears throat> Jack, 1942. Night is a curtain drawing back its heavy, sleepy-eyed veil for us to enter its darkest part. You should see how Jackson has his truck rigged up for this trip. He's nailed some flat boards along either side wall like benches. And before we left Alabama, he picked up a nice, sturdy piece of canvas from the hardware store. We all helped him pitch it up over the hatch. We out here looking like a band of outlaws in a covered wagon or Indians in a roving teepee, but at least there's something over our heads. Jackson say this is new business carrying folks out of Alabama to Chicago. I guess with eight men paying $14 a piece for the ride and gas and him making two, three trips a month, he'll make himself a nice piece of money. But then Jackson always could find a way to make a dollar with his slippery self. Remember how he charged us for the hayride at the church picnic or the time he drove down to New Orleans and came back with all those hoodoo potions, then set up that stand in the back of the truck to sell them? Jack could have been selling swamp water for all we knew, but folks sure lined up had their money out even before they got to the table. Yes, Lord, that's one man who'll never starve. Maybe if I had stayed, I could have gotten into something like that, carrying folks up north. Seemed like so many want to go these days. Jackson can't handle all these folks by himself. Daddy has that old truck sitting out in the garage. It needs work, but me and Buddy could have probably fixed it up. You know how much my little brother likes to work with his hands. He can fix almost anything with the motor. But no use bringing it up now. I'm already on my way. 
Alabama is a cloud of dust rising from beneath the tires, road already traveled, a fine-grained memory settling in our wake. Ride's been smooth so far, no trouble, except for when we pulled out of Warrior, this car full of white boys, kids really, trailed us for about 10, 15 miles, hollering out the window, nigger this, nigger that. Damn, these folks just don't want to let us go. And it isn't even us, really. It's the idea of us, the shadow of us, the way they feel like we're always empty and waiting for them to fill us up, like that dented pail hanging in the pantry that's held everything, rainwater, piss, milk, bleach, dirt, soapy water, whatever you want to load in that bucket, it'll carry. That's what we've been all this time. I'm not saying that's all we've been, but that's how they look at us. Shit, I don't want to talk about them anymore. I don't want to talk about us anymore. I want to talk about the air out here. I don't know what makes it so different from the air anyplace else, but Anna, I swear it runs through me like water, just as cool and clear. Yet there's something heavy to it, stale even. It's the musty smell spilling out from between the pages of those old books your grandmother keeps in her parlor, or the scent of mothballs escaping like a sigh from mama and daddy's closet. And still, it's more than this. There's something in this air that I can't name. You remember that time in New Orleans, right before we got married? I had come up from Alabama to help your daddy with his harvest from the orchard. And one morning, before we went out, your mama fixed us some biscuits with this red meat gravy for breakfast. You know how much I always enjoy your mama's cooking, but this was something else. That gravy left this feeling in me like I knew I had eaten it before, but couldn't quite remember when or where. Soon as I got back to Alabama, I asked Mama if she'd ever fixed gravy that way. And Anna, you know what she told me? She said that she'd never made it herself, but my dear, my grandmother used to make it and mash the biscuits in it and feed it to us when we were babies just starting the tea. That's how this air feels to me right now like something long forgotten, teetering on the brink of remembrance. But wherever it comes from, whenever I breathed it before, it's doing wonders for all of us right here, right now, cleaning us out. Folks keep getting up to spit out the back of the truck. It's the South coming up, all the stuff we kept inside that dried and crusted on our ribs, hardened around our joints and muscles. The air is moving through my body, no blocked passages, sinuses clear, nothing weighing down my chest. No medicine you can buy can give you this feeling, Anna. I wish you could know this freedom. Nothing to do out here but talk and sleep. I'm lucky I got my flashlight or else I wouldn't have been able to see to write, though I'm sure my heart would have guided my hand across the page without it. One of the men on the truck knows how to sing any song you can think of, the music is like candlelight, giving us a moment of brightness, a glimpse back into the lives now falling away with the miles. People like us, who've been in one place all of our lives, we get accustomed to things, like the sky hovering over our heads and homes. We come to think of it as the sky, and how we can walk every inch of our land or from one end of town to the other with our eyes closed, or clock the distance between our house and the next town, even the next state over by heart. Then we pack our picnics for the roadside and call ourselves traveling. But out here, you begin to understand 
that your sky is just a little thumbnail piece of sky. You begin to understand that no matter where you stop, the roads just keep going on and going on. Anna, the largeness of the world makes me feel so small, as though the wind could pluck me up and blow me away, just one more particle riding this ancient air. What anchors me here? Above us, the moon shimmers white as a store-bought egg against this night. We toss up the loudness of our voices and dreams like a gigantic stone trying to crack it to anoint ourselves in its yoke of possibility. The knowledge that the moon can't be broken ignites the talk, makes a man stand up and pace the three steps from the front of the truck to the back, pounding his fist in his palm, spewing out his plans. But it is the idea that it can that, it can, that makes him settle down in a corner and sift through the ashes of his thoughts, asking himself how he can make it work. It is the idea that saves us, keeps us hanging together, leaning on one another here in the darkness. The idea that we all have destiny locked up in our suitcases or stuffed deep in our back pockets, hidden in our socks, strapped around our waists. The idea that our hands can build a new life can carve for ourselves and our families a small space out of this vastness. Some of the men on this truck I grew up with and know well as my name. Some of them have traveled from Birmingham and other towns and states just to make this ride. There's some out here dressed in plain clothes and some out here bleeding, as they say, dressed sharp enough for their own funeral. Maybe it is a funeral of sorts because some of us are dead now to the South, and the South is dead in us. The turn of a key and the ignition enough to cut ties to the land, to family. But I am one of those stroking around the navel, feeling the long cord that keeps us connected to home. My heart is the softness in me, the place where roots have grown deep. I am one of those who still remembers. But anyway, we've come, we're here now, standing at this standing at the edge of this night, black as a spit-clean slate, our reflections shimmering on its surface, beckon, come on, why don't you just jump in? Thank you. caught off guard. Wow. Um, another round of applause for our two readers, please. Raina Rizzuto and Natasha Tarpley. Thank you. Um, right now we're going to start our, our panel discussion, so I think if the panelists could take their seats, I'm going to introduce our moderator, and um, we're going to begin. Uh, Martin Gomez is the executive director of Brooklyn Public Library, where he continues a lifelong commitment to encouraging diversity in libraries. He is an elected member of the American Library Associ Executive Board. He is a member of the American Library Association Executive Board and serves on the board of directors of the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce, the Poets House, and the Regents Commission on Library Services. I'm glad I'm sitting near him. I want to talk to him about getting my books in the library system and. Um, and um, please just welcome him up here. We're going to have a wonderful discussion with the people that are on the panel.
You're the second person to ask me about, is my book in the library? Listen, I'm gonna make a commitment tonight that every uh, reader tonight will have 58 copies of their book bought at the Brooklyn Public Library if they're not already there. That's one thing you could do as a director, is you can say, make it so. So we're gonna make it so. It's my pleasure to introduce you to the panel. I just want to mention that uh, I would like to thank the Open Book Committee of Penn for inviting me back. This is my second round here, and um, I want to particularly thank Elizabeth Nunes and Thulani Davis for having confidence in, uh, in me and bringing me back, so thank you very much. Um, well, uh, first I want to introduce you to, uh, and not necessarily in order, uh, you can see their names here, uh, Tisha Hooks, who is editor of Beacon Press, uh, Beacon Press is 145 years young, right? Uh, a wide range of uh, support for uh, African-American black voices in particular, uh, from James Baldwin, Notes of a Native Son, to most recently uh, Cornell West and Race Matters, and a whole bunch of things in between, right? Also, uh, Julie Koo, who is managing editor of Kaya Press. She is also the founder of the Indie Press email list, and website coordinator for the Council of Literary Magazines and Presses. The Kaya Press is dedicated to the publication of new and innovative literature, in particular, overlooked work from the Asian and uh, from the Asia and the Asian diaspora. Also at the table is Kalafa Sane, who is deputy editor of Transition Magazine. It's called an International Journal of Politics, Culture, and Ethnicity. Village Voice called it the only decent forum for black intellectuals. Started in Uganda in 1961, reborn in 1991, is that right? That's right. At Harvard, at Harvard. I'd also like to introduce you to Alex Taylor, who is co-director and literary editor of Curbstone Press. He is also professor emeritus at Eastern Connecticut State University and founder of Patterns and the Wormwood Review, an author of three books of poetry in his own right. He represents Curbstone, which is a nonprofit publishing house that has a commitment to social change, in particular with a focus on Latin America and Latino communities. Is that correct? Correct. What we're going to do today, and just, uh, just to give you an idea of our format, we'll have a panel discussion exploring some issues in publishing, in particular publishing for writers of color. <laughs> We'll do that for about 25 to 30 minutes. And all of you have been given some kind of uh, general areas we'd like to explore. It's just a framework, not necessarily want to keep you tied to that, but we use it as a framework for our discussion. We're going to talk about marketing and distribution. We'll also talk about target audiences and audience relationships. We'll also talk about writers of color in particular. Is it necessary that as a writer of color, you have to have necessary thematic content? What are the challenges also faced by writers of and editors of color. And I have a couple of my own, like why nonprofits and why, why not for-profit? So let's start the discussion, and uh, we'll have a chance after the first 25 minutes or so uh, to invite all of you from the audience to ask some questions to our panelists, okay? So let's talk about marketing and distribution. How does it work, and uh, what's, what's, what's up with that? <laughs> Anybody want to jump in? to use this opportunity to whine a little bit about distribution. Um, I think one thing that a lot of people don't understand about independent publishers and distribution is that 
for us to get our books out there on a major scale, we have to use an exclusive distributor. And an exclusive distributor takes more of a cut than what we have to give to the sales reps. And so that means that the money that's left over at the end is really, really small. Um, so it's just something that I think people should understand about having to buy the books and um, why books are not priced at such, are, are priced at a certain level. Um, and stuff like that. So it's a little bit of whining. But besides that, I think that a strength that an independent press can bring to a writer who who writes stuff that may not necessarily be for a broad mainstream audience is that we can afford to print smaller quantities and, and sell smaller quantities and still have a book be successful. So you know, if you have a book that is not going to be realistically targeted toward an audience of 25,000 people, but maybe it's more for an audience of 5,000 people, um, you should come to us, because that's something that we can do in a comfortable way. Any other comments about marketing? Um, well, I, I just wanted to comment on Julie's comment, because Judy Doyle, the co-director, one time did a chart on the anatomy of a book sale, and you take a $10 paperback, and by the time you pay for the distribution, you pay for the printing, you pay the royalties, there's about 80 cents left over out of $10 to run your whole operation. I think most people do not do not really uh, understand that, that uh, and they worry about the price of a book. Uh, and, uh, uh, you, you, just to give you a quick rundown, you got a $10 book, uh, the bookstore is going to take 40%, your distributor is going to sell it to the bookstore, and they're going to take 27%, and you keep, you know, it's like watching your loaf of bread come down the table, everybody takes a bite out of it, except you. <laughs> so, so it's kind of kind of a, a, a difficult that way. On the other hand, <clears throat> I don't complain about the take the, that they take, uh, because without the distributor, we're not able to really get our books into a national market. It's, it's the price you have to pay. We distribute. Uh, Kerbstone's mission is uh, rather simple. We try to publish books where one's concern with human rights or intercultural understanding intersects with the one's art. Uh, we're doing a series next year called Art on the Line, which will uh, have essays that kind of discuss that that kind of ethic or aesthetic. Um, we also do a lot of work with with schools, which I might want to talk about later. You might want to have questions about later. But I'd like to ask some questions, <laughs> because this is a business of questions. Very few answers. Uh, and uh, so I'd like to raise some questions that maybe you could ask us. Um, first of all, in terms of marketing, uh, we market through our distributor, market through the web, we market through book fairs, we market uh, through direct mail. But in the matter of the, uh, as a matter of fact, in particular, in the particular instance of uh, ethnic groups, I think it's very difficult to find that market. I don't think major publishers have found a good way of distributing effectively, and I don't think small presses have found it either. So the question I would ask there is, how can we more effectively? What other channels can we find that are not yet structured to market effectively uh, to the to the ethnic market? Alex, since you're asking the questions, yeah. Let me ask her. Let me try to answer okay. one. One of the areas that uh, this my business is public libraries, and I've been in this business for 24 years. And the public library market is a huge one, billions of dollars every year across the nation. There are ethnic caucuses within library land, whether it's the Black Caucus of the American Library Association, the Asian Pacific Librarians Association, the American Indian Libraries. All of these folks 
by books, and they're making recommendations, whether it's for a university library, or a school library, or public library. One of the questions I guess I have uh, to answer your question is, um, we have the holy grail, so to speak, of publishing is Publishers Weekly, right? And on occasion, they'll do things like uh, maybe a focus on books from um, various ethnic groups. Is that the only way that, let's say, the uh, distributors or the uh, um, uh, <coughs> community bookstores or the, even the Barnes & Noble people build their collections? Is it based on Publishers Weekly or is it based on some other uh, program? Go ahead. Uh, I think there are, there are a number of, of, of review sources for libraries, you know, the Kirkus, the uh, book list, the library journal. Uh, and of course, Publishers Weekly. Uh, you, you, it's very good you mentioned those uh, associations because, as a small publisher, most of us I think try to get to those to those meetings. And I was thinking, in the library market, uh, you know, it has, has shrunk because of budgets as well. I mean, you used to be able to figure you do a book if uh, a major publisher did a book, they could figure at least three thousand sold immediately to libraries. That number has shrunk considerably. Uh, That's on internet, isn't it? Yeah, 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 maybe, maybe. There's Would anybody else like to answer questions yeah, about the marketing on the panel? You can be informal. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'd like to maybe keep it focused on the on the panel for a moment. Any other uh, comments on marketing and distribution? Well, your question was referring to bookstores themselves, as uh -huh. opposed to. I, I think that you know, lots of small presses make an effort to reach the bookseller. Um, in addition to you know meeting people, having having lunch, and sitting down with them, and saying you know what books work best in your market. For example, Beacon as an independent press works very well. Our, our biggest market are independent bookstores. We try to forge a relationship with them, um, and to do what unfortunately cannot be done these days by a book distributor, um, which is really talk about these smaller lists. Um, increasingly, we found that with mergers, you have a sales force that is bringing around, um, working with independent bookstores, but bringing around five, six, seven catalogs. They don't know the books. You know, they can't know them anymore. They don't read them. They don't have, um, they just don't have enough, they don't have enough time. And in a lot of cases, particularly with the kind of books that we do, um, they don't have a lot of interest because we're dealing with a largely are kind of see our list as an anomaly and can't quite connect with it. Mm -hmm. So when it goes, when they go into a bookstore to try and hand sell it, it's a completely different matter altogether. They don't know what to do with it and they're not familiar with it and they don't have that inclination. So those are all the things that you have to kind of combat. So um, it's important, I think, independent publishers to have this kind of relationship, this one-on-one -on -one relationship to keep in contact with the, um, with an independent um, with an independent bookseller, um, as much as with the trains. We've had many distributors. <laughs> um, currently, we're with Houghton, but um, before that, we were with Valentine. Because I, my experience has been different uh, with Consortium, which is a, a distributor that focuses on quality literary presses, small presses. Mm -hmm. And small can be anything from Curbstone, which is hardly a little dot on the radar screen, to, to people doing it. Know, 15 or 20 or 30 books a year. Our salespeople really do know the books, and, and I'm so pleased and, and so amazed because the other two distributors, we had we had the same problem you were having. You know, they might as well have been selling peanuts or <laughs> candy bars. Can the audience hear okay? I'm sorry, can you hear that? Okay. 
Let's make sure I, we move the mic around, okay? Okay. Kalafa, are issues different for you with a, a journal uh, in terms of uh, marketing and distribution? Well, one of the, um, I think one of the most, I, I'm not sure if it's unique, I'd be interested to know if it is, is that um, the magazine, <coughs> uh, since it started in Africa, was, was uh, for the first 15 years of its existence based in Uganda, Nigeria, and, and Ghana. And, um, you know, our primary readership was in Africa. Um, now we're, uh, we're published by Duke University Press, um, and we're distributed by Eastern News, so that that's they sort of hit hit and miss, I suppose, some of the a bunch of the bookstores. And uh, but one thing that we've been trying to explore recently, and this may sound insane given the things that people are saying about the difficulty of getting books into shops here, is trying to um, go back to to the African market. We've had some success uh, in South Africa. Um, we've been to the Zimbabwe Book Fair, which happens every. August, um, so long as there's not a civil war there. And, um, and so I, I, one thing I was wondering was whether anyone else on, on the panel had had any luck with the international market. No. No, I think, I think um, um, the international market now, I was, we've sold a few books, but I mean, to say luck, no. Uh, we, we try to, to sell the rights rather than, because you know, what drives the sale of a book is reviews. So you take a, a US book to England or to France, unless you've got a particular group very interested in that book, and then it's not gonna have any attention paid to it. Uh, we lost a lot of money trying to start uh, distribution in, in England. Um, but I think selling rights is probably the, for people our size is the most sensible thing to try to do it, wouldn't you? I think um, I went to some kind of symposium on this, and apparently it, it depends on the book publishing industry in the country. So if they have a very vibrant book publishing industry there, then selling rights makes sense. But if there isn't really, then yeah. selling books could make sense. So um, I know this woman who's the international sales person at Penguin, and you know, even Penguin only sells maybe a couple hundred copies here and there around the world, but it adds up. So I think it's a matter of finding the right in. Like we, we have a, a contact in the Philippines. They're a publisher, but they also distribute some foreign books. So if you, if you find the right match, yeah, Latin then America it's possible. is easier because Ingram deals with Latin America, right. so we do sell there, but, but we've had very, it's just our size. I mean, a major publisher might be able to do that, but if you're yeah, know. all small Doing groups, it's, it's the economy of scale just didn't work out for. I don't know. I was right. up at Beacon. Well, we found it. We found it very actually cost effective to have. We have a foreign rights agent who um, works with licensing. Um, works as far as um, licensing all our books around the world. But we found that it was very difficult for us. I mean, involved with the kind of hours that are involved in trying to get foreign sales and. Um, you know, the kind of manpower, woman power, as that may be, um, that it was just much more effective to have somebody, um, have a, a freelancer who knew the agents, who traveled frequently, to just be out there and to do it, um, as opposed to having somebody in-house try to generate all of that activity. Well, I'm a little naive on some of the business aspects that you guys are dealing with, but a lot of people now are saying, cut out the middleman, which to me translates into the distributor, yeah. and go directly to the market via the web. Any success or any predictions on how that's going to go? Is that going to make it easier for you to get stuff out there? You know, um, small press distribution recently uh, opened up their website to book sales, and they had pretty modest goals, they said, but they've 
exceeded them by you know double or triple of what they're expecting. So they're having some success. I mean, personally, our website has not elicited very many sales, but um, I think that has to do with promotion. I mean, Amazon.com is losing, what, $8 million a year and building their website. I mean, it's not a matter of having a website. The trouble with the web is it's too much stuff there. It's like the CIA, you know? <laughs> I can't find anything. Uh, uh, and uh, unless you've got the money to market, to market your website, and there were people can link to it, I think we have not had a great deal. We sell a little bit on the web, but I think the web may develop into something, but at, at this point, uh, I, don't, I don't see it's going to help uh, this group of publishers here all that much. If I was in the audience, then I'd be kind of discouraged. Uh, it sounds like uh, there are more obstacles uh, to a writer of color <coughs> his or her work distributed and marketed. Um, be encouraged. No. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I think it's really a very exciting time because you see the number of uh, the possibilities for, for a major market are there better than they were before. Uh, the possibilities uh, for a mid-list publisher are there. Um, and I think the question is uh, really, where's your home? You, know, you, have, you find a home, so, and, if, and it depends on what your goals are. It depends on the kind of books you're writing. If you're writing a, you know, a teen uh, gothic romances or something like that, then maybe go to one place and you might make a lot of money. If, uh, it's, it's, it's what, you know, the question is, what are your goals? I mean, it's, it's your goal to, as James Baldwin, uh, one of your great writers said, to tell as much of the truth as one can bear, or is your goal to make a living uh, with your writing and, uh, and, uh, and then uh, to, to focus on what, what, uh, what does the audience want, mostly entertainment. But it's much more complicated than that because there are very, very good books that sell very well, you know. And, and it, the good is not always pushed out by the bad, you know. So uh, I just keep writing. It's a, it's a good, it's a, there are lots of opportunities and we shouldn't be negative uh, about, about that. It's just that when you look at the marketing aspect of it, it, it can be a little bit daunting. I think there's very much right now a feeling of kind of grassroots work, kind of this kind of incredible power that you can take, you can start your own publishing company, that you can reach your market, that you know your market, and you have these tools that include the internet um, to really reach, reach out and reach these people, and that's incredibly powerful. And what's more important is, um, in terms of kind of more established publishing, is the idea that if you do well with that book, people take notice. They want to publish you. They want to snap that up, and they want to distribute it themselves. Um, and they want to like they want to you publish yourself, and then a larger publisher becomes more interested in publishing you. So you sort of you can keep building on that success, um, and it's a it's a really powerful time for that. So are you suggesting that if you're a writer of color, that um, you don't necessarily have to have some thematic content that relates to you as an ethnic person? I personally think that that would be a mistake. You need to write what you are passionate about, what you feel, what is true to you. And if that, um, if you are a Milton scholar and you want to write a treatise on Milton, then you should damn well be able to do it. Yeah. And I, I think that's the strength of going to an independent press because, I mean, for, for Kaya, we, we publish people who, we don't care who their audience is. We don't care if their audience is really large or really small. Um, and so, I mean, i.e., you don't have to, you don't have to be writing for a white audience. You don't have to be explaining your background to a mainstream audience if you publish with 
oppressed that might kind of get what you're writing about more. So that's that's what I really love about working in in independent presses because you know it's more. I think, I think another point along that line, which is interesting, is many people who are have been publishing with larger houses come to us because they've gone through so many experiences of being, you know, pushed, launched way up and then remaindered six months later. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the terrible things about the publishing business is that commercial publishers, that is for-profit publishers, need to pay a tax on their inventory. So it's a great discouragement. If you have all this book, all these books in the warehouse, uh, houses that aren't moving very fast and you're paying tax on them, you, what you do, you shred them. You ever been into a Walden's or aren't you in the back room and they've got all these books with covers torn torn off? They're just shredding them. Uh, on the other hand, when I say find a home, I mean if, if you want, if, if you're writing serious fiction, you know it's not probably uh, going to be, the likelihood of it becoming a bestseller is not great, but you want that book to have its audience over time. There's two kinds of audiences, aren't there? There's this vertical audience where a book shoots into the air and sells uh, 500,000 copies, uh, and then in lots of cases disappears. But there's another audience over, over, over time where year after year after year we have books of poetry that sold seven or 8,000 copies, but not the first season. Certainly not. That's incredible. But, but because we keep them in print and we keep marketing them and we keep trying to to get colleges to adopt them in their courses and so forth, then because you have a commitment as a publisher not to let that book die if you believe in it. And in the old days, uh, you know, the, the great commercial publishers, uh, uh, Farrar Strauss and others, when they were independent, uh, Farrar's still pretty independent, although they've been bought up, but, but people, would, people would, would, would invest in a writer. You know, you would publish a writer knowing, well, we'd be lucky to sell a couple thousand copies of this, right? But if we invest in that writer's career, give that writer a chance, go for the next book in over a period of time, build, build a list from that writer that, that is significant and allow that writer to develop. That no longer happens as soon as you apply the entertainment uh, profit expectations to, to publishing. You know, the publishing expectations of profit were 5 to 7 percent. You know, when Disneyland takes over and all the other corporate entities, uh, they want a profit of 15, 10 to 15, 20 percent. So impossible. that means that a lot of those books just are no longer viable. And it's not that they're evil or anything. That's just the game they're playing. And, uh, and uh, if you can play that game, you should play it because, because we, we certainly try to get our writers into that, into that mainstream. On the other hand, uh, it's very disappointing if you if you just are kind of left behind in the in the in the tide and backwashed up into a into a remainder shop somewhere. So that, How do writers yeah. come to you, or do you seek them? How about you? Uh, uh, is there anything different that you guys do? That um, well, I, I mean, I think that uh, well, well, two things. I mean, one, I do want to say first off that at 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 discussions at discussions like these where you have you know like a room full of writers. The upshot is often that it's kind of very difficult. It's a it's a difficult time to be a writer. It's difficult to make a living as a writer. And uh, I don't want to be assaulted out on the street, so I have to say <laughs> that yes, that's that's true. But I mean, at the same time, I, I think and I hope this is also a room full of readers. Yeah. And um, I mean, as such, I think we would all have to say that it's an amazing time 
to be a reader. I mean, obviously, Kaya, Curbstone, <coughs> Transition Magazine is just the tip of one out of many icebergs. Um, so, I mean, I just kind of wa wanted to say that, that um, certainly, while when we're up here, we're often, we often have this other perspective, but I think all of us in our day-to-day -day lives are more concentrated on the kind of excitement of being a, a reader in, in today's literary climate. I mean, that said, um, at, at Transition, um, we sort of we sort of try to do both. Like any magazine, we try to develop a, a readership. Um, you know, we have this completely imaginary idea of who our reader is, and then we try and not just find that person, but create that person um, <laughs> as much as possible. Um, that said, I think uh, to a certain extent, we're trying to also create a writership, um, which is to say, um, if we want, if we're looking for, you know, say, memoirs about race science in India, we don't necessarily just go to those sorts of people since they may not exist. But um, we, you know, from a, we go, I think, from a fairly wide pool of people, from journalists to poets, essayists, you know, novelists. Um, and so I think that's one thing, you know, being a magazine, um, being a much shorter format, that's one thing I think we have the freedom to do. Are you deliberately though looking for black writers? Um, well. We're, we're definitely, we're deliberately interested in what black writers have to say. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, we sort of, I mean, Transition exists to publish unusual writing from or about the non-white world. Transition was actually founded by a uh, Ugandan of Indian descent uh, yeah. um, who, who, claimed that, who claimed that he was as African <laughs> as the next guy. Um, uh, President Obote disagreed and threw him in jail. But <laughs> regardless, um, our... our our orientation is very much kind of cosmopolitan. And each of you represent an ethnic press, so to speak. I hope I'm not mischaracterizing that. But do you also specifically target Asian writers, black writers, uh, Latino writers? Is that, uh, is that your strategy for getting uh, any writers to publish? Well, in terms of, of um, Beacon, there are actually there are four editors, and we all have different areas, different lists that we deal with. Um, I do, um, I guess, what would be characterized as ethnic studies, Asian American, African American, um, Latino studies. Um, we're moving into Caribbean studies. Um, so uh, among, you know, a host of other things, which include um, food studies and um, um, some fiction and things of that nature. Um, because Beacon is, for the most part, we, although we have a, have a strong fiction list, it's mostly reprint. Um, we are only, we've only done one novel um, in the past, <coughs> actually two, both by Gail Jones, those were our first original novels in 98, and, um, sorry, 97 and 98. Um, and we're also doing an original novel this year, um, a work by Ruth Ann Lumacun, who's a longtime Beacon author. Um, she wrote a book called Thousand Pieces of Gold, and um, we've steadily acquired her backlist, and so she had a new novel, and we were very pleased to do that one. Um, but given that those parameters, I mean, Beacon publishes kind of in a wide range of areas, anthropology, sociology, um, among others, and religion. So I, I deal with, because of my particular focus, I do look for um, Asian American authors, African American authors, Latino authors, but um, I'm really looking for good book projects. And if, you know, they don't, a, a project comes from a way that doesn't fall into those parameters, it's, you know, I'll still acquire it if it's a good book and if it's a good book for Beacon. Um, so, I mean, those are the kind of criteria we're looking for is really good writing. 
Anybody else? Well, you know what's interesting? Uh, our best acquisitions agents are our own authors. Uh, they go to many conferences as we do, but often we get writers coming to us because one of our authors will say, hey, you ought to try, try them. Uh, you know, they were good to me. And so always be nice to your authors, you'll get more. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think though we should be more proactive and I, I think that uh, some of us, Curbstone particularly, uh, because of the, there's only three people on the publishing side and one person on our outreach side. So sometimes we're spending a lot of time just taking care of details and not doing as much you know, imaginative work as we should be. Uh, to try to correct that, we're, we'll be announcing very shortly a Latino fiction prize. And we want to set up a number of, uh, of prizes to attract, attract writers to come to us uh, and to give us a shot. But, but essentially, I must say that most of our, uh, you know, uh, Jack Hirschman brought Louis Rodriguez, and Martina Spada brought uh, Doug Anderson, and so that uh, the writers have formed a kind of uh, uh, talent talent agency for us, and uh, that's been very useful. I'd like to now turn it over to the audience and see if they have some questions. Uh, I think uh, you were ready to ask. <laughs> <laughs> she can remember it now. <laughs> Jessica. Yeah, and the you know the, uh, the voice poetry, the the rap poetry has done a great deal to bring that uh, to our consciousness. I think. And, uh, uh, yeah. But that's the kind of alternate market we're talking about. That's really good. And you know what uh, Art of Publica was doing? And they're, they're marketing through grocery stores now and, and their children's lit. And it's a different, and, and uh, the traditional, I mean, I have a lot of Latino friends who tell me, you know, I go into a Barnes and Noble, I'm not picking any particular store, I go into a bookstore, I don't feel it's, it's home there because there's nothing 
my material isn't there. Uh, that's right. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we can't find Louis Rodriguez there either, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Which, which does bring up the question: What's going to happen with the change that you raised earlier? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Put a question in the back. Yeah. Yes. I actually, I certainly agree with you, and one of the points that I wanted to bring up with in terms of grassroots organization is about alliances, that we're all in it together, that we, that like it or not, uh, reading is falling by the wayside, and we are struggling to make a place for it, keep people <coughs> thinking about the possibilities are, are within a book. And I certainly agree as an editor that, that I'm, the, I'm, the first, I'm the advocate. I'm the person that falls in love with the book, and then it's my job to make sure that every person who comes in contact with me, who hears what I have to say, who reads whatever that it is that I write about this book, falls in love with it too. You know, I have to get people as passionate about it as I am, or it's going nowhere. And I, you know, completely understand that. And that, and I also agree with you um, in terms of the author that 
you know, um, being realistic, being out there, being understanding that a marketing department can't market your book if you're not going to be out there and willing to do some of the work, you know, about um, making connections yourself and putting yourself up on the, on the line and saying, I'm an author and, you know, I, I'd like to set up a reading, I'd like to do this. Um, especially when you're dealing with a really a, a larger house, but um, you know, independent presses, we've got small marketing departments, and we need as much help as we can from the author. So I certainly agree with you that it's about alliances as well, um, and then moving forward and making something happen from those alliances. We can see that when we when we graph sales, we can see a writer who's out there, like Martina Spada, going to readings. His sales are way up. We have one writer whom I won't name, who never goes anywhere. His books are dead. They're dead in the water, right? <laughs> I mean, so you're absolutely right. I'm glad you said that. That that it's the writer too has to take part in this in this process of getting the book. And the writer supported by the publishing house when absolutely. they need to go on the road. Uh, let me ask a quick question. Uh, prizes. I heard you mention uh, considering a prize for Latin American writers. There are the Coretta Scott King Award. There's uh, somebody here won an Alex, which is for young adult literature. Uh, there's now a Pura Bell Prey Award. Uh, for Latino writers and illustrators for children's books. Uh, how important are they? Uh, do they help uh, with the distribution? The Caldecott's, the Newberries. Well, those help a lot. Uh, but, you know, there are prizes and there are prizes, right? Uh, uh, I think our prize is really more to get, to get uh, people to come and submit manuscripts to us. Uh, I'm, we, we, for example, published the Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz Prize from the Guadalajara Book Fair, which is it's okay. I mean, it's uh, better known than, than some others. But it depends on the weight that that prize carries. At Caldecott, you know, you can pretty much be sure you're going to sell a lot of books. But uh, so that the, it's, it's like everything else. It's a sliding scale, yeah, depending on the importance of the prize. Yeah. I think that's it.
it's, it's not, not an easy one. I have some comments in there, but you know, let, me, let me give somebody else a chance. You know, we all have to become activists here. Just keep yeah. in mind, too, because out of all that group, the one who's making it possible is the writer. Mm -hmm. And if you're not giving the writer some breathing mm -hmm. space, you know, I don't want any money. Mm -hmm. Not that I have a job. I'm myself in a pandemic mm -hmm. research, so I have a job. Mm -hmm. I just want the space for the writer and to create. And, and, and I can't do that. It's very difficult, there's no question. I think one, one thing we should all do is support the National Endowment for the Arts, which has been cut back and leveled for years. Do you know, I just, we, I, we had a Danish writer we published some time ago, Henrik Norbrandt, and he just won the largest uh, award in Scandinavia after all these years. His government subsidized him since he was 19 years old, all right? Uh, and it's a very interesting kind of subsidy. It's not like winner take all, give $50,000 to some rich son of a bitch, right? Uh, uh, but rather, it depends on, on need. So if you get that lifetime subsidy from the Danish government, lifetime grant, you can go to work, but you don't get the money. But any year you want to take the time, and you can't live in Denmark because it's too expensive. You go to Turkey or, or Greece or somewhere. Then, so, that, so that they've invested, that government has invested money in their artists rather than in airplanes that don't fly in the rain. <laughs> we'll have to hold the next war in Tucson or somewhere, right? Um, so, so uh, you know, I think, I think our priorities have to be really, really thought about. And we have to take action on that. You know, Ralph Ellison used to say, all thought without action is labeled file and forget, right? So, I mean, how many of you have gone to write your senators and kind of say, support those arts? Because the, the NEA individual writers' grants were the only ones saved, I think, a couple of years ago because people went in the lobby. I, I sympathize 100% with, with that position. It's a terrible position to be put in. Are there any more questions from the audience? Yes, at the back. Is this a question for the uh, author in the front, for Elizabeth? Okay. What are magazines paying for fiction these days? <laughs> I can tell you what transition magazines pay for fiction, um, which is nothing. <laughs> There's, uh, in terms of fame and fortune, it's sometimes a choice. And uh, if you go with us, you have to choose fame. <laughs> That used to be a, a possible, uh, you know, I mean, I think Dickens wrote a lot of his uh, material that way, you know, just uh, the book wasn't finished yet. But now most serialization takes place after the book is finished. Because yeah. the editors get nervous with their deadlines. They want to see the complete uh, manuscript, and then before it's published, they'll do a first serial presentation of it, which can amount to quite a bit of money in a the, in the large circulation magazine. But there wasn't Stephen King doing the... Right, you know, but that... 
there are there are smaller um, internet companies who are just beginning to experiment with serialization. Um, I don't think they're paying quite yet, but it could be a way to. Um, I mean, I think that that rather than the traditional magazine um, could be a new direction, a new course. But um, certainly, right now, it really is after after um, the book has been accepted and um, is on its way to being published. That's where the kind of licensing and the money comes in as far as serialization is concerned. Let's do one more question. Yes. What about e-books? Uh, Beacon has currently taken steps to, um, to think about or to move forward into lightning publishing. Some of our books are going to be available. Some of our um, older classics are going to be available through kind of lightning presses where you can order a book instantly. And, or you can order a book and it's printed for you instantly and then delivered to this your is home. A, this is a computer e-book you're talking about? Right. <laughs> Quite honestly, I, I don't think anybody knows at this point. And I, yeah, I think. Yeah, well, the right. e-book you can take three, three or four novels in a, in a right. diskette and just. And I was amazed at how I, I thought that sounded terrible, you know, but I was amazed at how easy, how clear it is with it, with the good e-books, you know. And uh, but I don't know, I don't know whether the, uh, I don't know whether the whole stories in on that yet or not. So. I'm, I'm sad to say that unfortunately we are very far behind. Um, most independent presses are, um, and even the larger presses, you know, really, I mean, we work with books and it's very hard to, to give that up and to imagine something other than that. I mean, I know um, we have added, uh, there was a point where we had to add language to our contract which said, you know, at some point there may not be a book. And so, do we in fact have the copyright? Can we still publish? Are we are we considered publishers of a book? Um, and how do we how do we make sure that, for example, something like something like Notes of a Native Son, that we would still be the publishers of that book because we were the original publishers of that book? So having though though we may not have, I, I think it's currently it's divided into electronic reading rights and electronic adaptation rights with adaptation being, you know, including um, some kind of um, visual material, as it were, and then um, the reading version being the text alone. But at least we, you know, hoping to hold on to that so that we can publish that in whatever form it may be, um, be it an e-book or something, some later development. Um, but we don't know, like, what, what our shape will be, how we will, how we will um, publish books. It's all up in the air, and um, it's, it's, it's very difficult, I think, for published to, publishers to envision themselves as, as working with anything other than books because we're book people. Um, and, and having that paper in hand, um, we're really slow. We haven't made that transition yet.
Right, which right. is another thing. That's the thing is that books are affordable. Everybody can own a book, a used book, <laughs> a book, you know. And we're still building libraries. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering the, the thing about lightning print and e-books. I wonder if that will make it so that larger houses can maintain rights on books that they may have given up before. That I mean, there are a lot of independent presses out there. Their whole list is picking up backlist of publishers that have let gone by the wayside. And so, I mean, what what's going to happen to those guys like Dalkey Archive? That's an interesting point because mm -hmm. you, you, your contract ends when your book's no longer in print. But if it's considered still right. in print, right? What is still in print? I mean, I I was recently talking to a writer who you know, their book was still considered in print because it was lightning print. And so there weren't actually any books out there, but if someone wanted it, they could just print it right away. So, you know, your books aren't on the shelves anymore, but it's still trapped with this publisher. So what does that mean for a writer? I believe most of our panelists will be here for the reception after, and all of you, of course, are invited to stay for the reception. We have a couple of other authors who will be reading. Please join me in thanking Tisha Hooks, Julie Ku, Kalafa Sanai, and Alex Taylor for their insight. Okay, I'm having fun. Um, wow, what great, great panelists, great insight, and um, we're not done yet, so don't go anywhere. We're gonna do a raffle, I believe, at this point. Who filled out the raffle? Yeah, I, don't, I, want, I want a book, too. I hope you put your name in here, because if you did, you can get a, a free book. Um, I wanna mention, too, because we are about supporting writers and artists, and the Asian American Writers Workshop will be selling all of the readers' works tonight out there, so everyone leave with a book, at least one, if not all four. Okay, so I'm gonna pick someone's name. Um, Maron, Maron, somebody, Hardy, who looks very close to me. Oh yeah, I did. Oh no, I'll get, we'll, get, we'll work out your book. <laughs> Is it Marana, Maron, where are they? Hi. You come, you're supposed to come get this, and then you could go out, the, <laughs> out there, and you could get a bus. So. Okay. Um, I'm going to say a couple things. That um, I'm just inspired by the panelists, and I was, I'm really happy just now even more than I was before, because I'm, I'm going through a lot right now in my life. and. Um, and I'm getting married on Saturday. And so I'm stressed out. I'm having bridal stress. OK. So um, I'm really happy I came, though, because it's just inspiring to hear other people doing what you are attempting to do. I'm a, just a small time publisher. I only have three books under my belt. And, um, but I'm only a couple years old, and we're, and we're pushing. And it's, it's very important that, you know, I'm sure it was a bad weather day, but, you know, when there are things like this, that people like you support this, because, you know, we need the seats filled up. 
to hear these wonderful voices, the other two that are about to come up and read now, and these incredible panelists who are, are pushing so hard. Like the idea of an ebook makes me sick. And you know, I'm of the hip hop generation. I'm, I'm MTV and all those other things, and I still love the feel of a book in my hand. And I'm, and I'm going to be a person, an advocate of that as a part of my own generation to make sure that our people, that my the sister, little sisters and brothers in high school and junior high, realize that you know you can go buy a record, but you can also go buy a book. And I have been a, a force in doing that. And that because I made myself available to these young kids because I feel like I still am one on some level. And so they don't feel like I'm being preachy to them or too academic. They feel like, all right, I can do that. All right, this is a book. Okay, I can read a book. You know, that's a cool thing. And so it, it is a writer's responsibility on some level to make sure that we're doing the work that we're supposed to do as a writer. I don't know what it feels like for someone to take care of me. I don't know what that feels like. I'm not on a book level anyway. And so, you know, I, I, I know that that must be nice, you know, and I, I as a writer, would strive to want to have that as well one day. But um, for now, it's just an activist thing for me, getting, making sure that these writers, um, Sharif Simmons, Fast Cities and Objects That Burn, if I can plug it, and um, yeah, him, and, and Saul Williams. So um, I'm going to introduce to the two last readers, but I want to acknowledge four other people. There were eight authors being honored this evening. Four of them are not in attendance, um, but they're here in spirit. So I want to please give a round of applause after I'm going to read the four names to uh, Catalina Carriaga, who's the author of Cultural Evidence, a book of poetry, Aurora Levins Morales, um, Medicine Stories, History, Culture, and the Politics of Integrity, South End Press. Um, Akila Oliver, The Said Dialogues, Poetry, um, that's Smoke Proof Press, and Iridit, I don't want to say wrong things. Um, Jervy Turvalon, Living for the City, Short Stories, and um, please just clap for them because they were honored as well tonight. Not sure if their books are out there, they may or may not be, but um, these authors' um, works will be outside. Timothy Liu will read from Say Goodnight, and Elver. Trevino Hart from Barefoot Heart, Stories of a Migrant Child. Please have a round of applause for these two readers. Thank you. I just want to make a plug for the Asian American Writers Workshop. They're selling books outside. And the two people from the workshop, they're not being paid, and they've been sitting there for three hours. So I think if we can all just pick up a book from them, or at least pick up the new Asian American Writers Workshop brochure, which has their new building, I think they'd be really pleased. And if we could all do that, especially since this event is free, right? Isn't that great in New York? Um, I'm going to keep things short, because I, there's supposed to be great food at 9 o'clock. So I'm just going to recite a couple of poems from Say Goodnight. Uh, the first one is called Easter 1996. Meat hardly resurrects these days, dear abattoir. Idyllic hogs wallowing in the mud, not part of this reality. Porkhocks cellophane on styrofoam slabs. Outstretched arms cross enough for us to bear. But who comes now to hold this man in his hour of dread? Eumenides, where those metonymical mouths grace an unprimed canvas, creased inside a second-hand monograph? Keep looking. You have dined, Emerson said. Now face complicity. Brick by brick, the walls must be disassembled till the artist's carcass is reunited with its shriek. What comes unbidden now but meaningless words to those who have resigned their parts in the casual comedy? Merrill, Manette, 
and all those stricken voices sold off by the pound, the dice rattle lodged in our throats. And this last poem um, is called After the Storm, because hopefully when we leave this building, it will be after the storm. <laughs> Renewed by morning air, now pouring in through a torn screen, we wake to dawn's cold invasion. So many birds outside, it sounds like a tape of Brahms on cue or review. That unrest of something always searching. Once my heart rate slowed when I fell in love, altering the scale of pitch. All my callosities left me dissatisfied, particularly the sinewy tessitura of Turando's opening aria in Questa Regia, stretched to breaking. It took weeks for my ears to recover a sense of proportion, her ghost-like footprints trailing through the house as though it too were a stage dissolving to an oversong of sparrows under the eaves, where the cries of cats punctuate the cause of crows glassed in all winter. We cannot help but sleep in late as the sound of another early westbound train and all things passing. The dawn asks nothing but our failures, an empty page with branches smeared with soot. You said we are a hacksaw cutting through a cage of bone. You tell me how Xu Chi Mo went down in mountains covered with mist, how words go out of print. Yet fascicles sewn up by Dickinson's hands survived the grave not Amherst, nor the heads on pennies buried in the earth we found while planting bulbs, one with the date of my mother's death and the other with your birth. Or was it merely a dream with wings flying too close to the sun, a book out of which the congregation sing, sings, their bodies more naked now sitting upright in burnished pews than all the men and women who have slept in our arms. How the room grows vast each time you turn away. No marriage lasting longer than a thousand nights. Passion itself a dying swan, a story without wings. Neither coins stacked up on a granite stone nor words recited in an unknown tongue can turn back the breaking day, glistening haunches that spring out of the earth in one clean arc from birth door to the grave. Hello, I'm Elva, Elva Trevino Hart, and uh, I haven't been a writer for very long. This book is the first thing I've ever published. There has been no, there was no short stories, there was no poems, there was nothing before this book. And I'm a new writer, even though I have a lot of gray hair. Um, I only uh, um, started writing a couple of years ago. I did a degree in theoretical math and computer science master's degree before I started writing. And uh, this story is my story about how I got from a segregated South Texas town and being a migrant worker to being a writer. 
So it starts with, I'm nobody. And my story is the same as a million others. Poor Mexican-American female child. We all look alike. Dirty feet, brown skin, downcast eyes. You've seen us if you've driven through South Texas on your way to Mexico. We're there, walking barefoot by the side of the road. During harvest time, there are fewer of us. We're with our families in the fields. Some of us grow up and move to the city. We work downtown and speak perfect English. Others of us stay, and I don't know which is better. Sometimes we move to places where people don't know. They don't know that underneath the wool crepe suit is a brown, barefoot little girl like me. Behind the university speak is a whole magic world in Spanish. We play the game well, and it looks as if we're happy. Sure, we're happy. But then, when we're flipping through radio stations on the way to the office, we get to the Mexican station, and they're playing our favorite corrido. It makes us long for mamacita, for tortillas, for the comadres and the tias, for dancing rancheras in the hot, sweaty night under the stars at the fiesta. Then, the nine-to-five life seems dry as a stone and without a soul. How did I get here, we ask. I'll tell you. I have uh, Mexican dichos uh, starting each section of the book. The major part of the book is about growing up as a migrant worker, and the, the dicho that starts that section is, aunque seas muy grande y rico, necesitas el pobre y chico. Though you may be wealthy and tall, you will still need the poor and the small. And chapter one starts with my father's favorite dicho, which was, al que madruga, Dios lo ayuda. God helps the early riser. My whole childhood, I never had a bed. In the one-bedroom rancho where I was born, my apa suspended a wooden box from the exposed rafters in the ceiling. My ama made a blanket nest for me in the box. It hung free in the air over my parents' bed, within reach of both. If I cried, they would swing the box. We moved to Tio Alfredo's house in town two years later when apa left his job as a sharecropper on the McKinley farm. Theo invited us to come and live with him right after he built the house on my grandmother's property. So my parents, my five older siblings, and I settled into the two-bedroom house with my uncle. When the lights got turned off at night, it was such a small house that we could all hear each other saying goodnight. Hasta mañana, pa. If God wills it, mija. Hasta mañana, ma. Si Dios quiere. We went around this way until we connected and were reassured our family was all right close and sweet and loving. Lucky me on my small pallet on the floor. In the backyard, a huge mulberry tree dropped purple stains on the dirt below. In the front, a Chinese loquat made juicy yellow plums. These were our growing up fruits along with the red pomegranate jewels that grew in my Tianina's yard. Occasionally, a round cactus that Tianina had in her front yard sprouted pichilingues, tiny red fruits the size of a raisin. The taste was so distinctive and the fruit so rare that my siblings and I fought over who got the next one. Tio Alfredo's house was situated directly between two cantinas. Excitement on either side of us, the click of the billiard balls, the throaty smoke-filled laugh of the cantineras, and the occasional drunken brawl. A mom made me come in the house when a fight started. The music of my nursery days started just before the coming of night, like an invocation. I sang Gavino Barrera, 
el gavilán pollero, and volver, 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 along with the borrachos and the jukebox. Amalia Mendoza filled our backyard with Spanish, the trumpets and violins in the background. In the spring of 1953, Apa interrupted our family life at Tio Alfredo's to take us to work in the beet fields of Minnesota. So then it goes on to tell about our adventures <laughs> in Minnesota, thinning sugar beets, and then on to Wisconsin to pick green beans, uh, cucumbers, and tomatoes, and then back to Texas. So uh, that's the beginning of the book. And now I just want to read to you at the end, which is about writing. At a writing seminar, my teacher said, if you want to be cool, get out of writing right now. The storyteller came to me in church. I got out my notebook and wrote half of it during the minister's talk. When the service was over, I went to the church basement to finish writing the story. And then I started crying. As I wrote, the feelings I had that summer in Minnesota of being a motherless child came back full force. Marielena had been a spiritual mother to me when my own mother was too exhausted to care about me. Later, typing the story in my own basement, the feelings overwhelmed me and I had to stop typing because I could no longer see the screen or make my fingers work. I had cut an emotional artery. I was bleeding profusely and I didn't know how to turn it off. I cried for hours, for all the times when I had felt alone and unloved. In my low moments, I wondered what I was doing. In the silence, pure and simple, the answer came. I needed to integrate my childhood Mexican side back into myself. I used to think those years were all joy and comfort for me. That's all I remembered. But when I wrote, all I got was pain. When I wrote from the point of view of the little Mexican kid inside, it seemed I had nothing to contribute but sadness and hard stories. And that seemed wrong. My intellect and the strong critic in my head wanted to censor everything. My intellect had served me so well in the past, now it became a hindrance. I put it on the shelf and followed my heart. I wrote whatever came. I let myself write the unspeakable, the unwritable, the inadmissible. I wanted to take all the darkness and turn it into luminosity. I wanted to weave all the old dark strands into the tapestry of my current life. I wanted to eat my experience and digest it until it became a part of me. I constantly had to write past the question, why am I doing this? Would it matter if I wrote or not? And then I knew if I didn't write, I would die inside while my body was still alive. So I decided to embrace the ugliness of the migrant years. I took the ugliness into my lap as I would an unappealing child. I kissed it and held it until it quieted. Clarissa Piccola Estes, author of Women Who Run With the Wolves, quotes a poem by Charles Simic. He who cannot howl will not find his pack. I howled on the page. I saw how much power there is in embracing exactly who you are. For me, it is being a Mexican-American woman writer. I'm no longer alone. I found my pack. I just, I just want to say one thing, that it was a small press that supported me in doing this. Um, I, when I wrote it, people told me, you have to get a New York agent. 
So I wrote a letter and she called me back. She said, I've been looking for somebody like you. <laughs> and then she sent my book to HarperCollins, right? And HarperCollins wrote me a two-page letter. And they said, we really like your book, but we want you to add this, we want you to change that, we want you to turn it into a novel, basically. And I wasn't willing to do that. So it went in the drawer for eight years. And it was a small press that let me publish it just as I wrote it, just as I wanted, had wanted to write it. So uh, I'm a big supporter of small presses. Thanks. If we could just give a, another, a special thanks to Ms. Hard. Um, she came all the way from Texas to be here tonight, so we just had to get on the train. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, before I close, I do want to mention this is about support, and there's a, an independent publisher here who's having an event that I think some of you may be interested in. Um, African Voices Magazine is having a cultural circle conference. It's um, Saturday, June 17th at the Harlem State Office Building. I believe Carolyn Butts is here and has, you have information here, but some great people, Tony Medina, um, Greg Tate, uh, Louis Ray Rivera, Jill Nelson, um, some cool folks are going to be there talking about the politics of art, um, women's voices, where are they, and exploring the publishing circle. So um, you have information, hopefully, outside. Um, the Penn Open Book Committee would like to officially thank you for coming out to the Beyond Margins 2 celebration of these wonderful writers and voices and artists that deserve so much um, credit for just keeping independent voices and real voices um, alive. And so I just want to thank you all for coming, for sharing your work. And um, there is a reception. We want to encourage you to buy books. Um, the, the reality is um, what Sonia brought up at the conference last month is that we can't survive without you. And so even if you're a writer, buy another writer's book. You know, <laughs> you know don't get cocky like, well, so buy mine. You know, go, I'm going to buy some books. And, and I would um, encourage you to do the same as long as, and we'll have the reception to follow is right around the corner. And so thank you for coming out, and I hope you had a wonderful night. And thank the writers again. And um, thank you, Jace, for having me. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you.